A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussein. Maz, there is a lot to talk about this week, uh, especially what appears to be the expansion of Israel's war against Gaza now into uh, a broader war. There have been concerns from the beginning that part of Israel's strategy in the way that it's been conducting its scorched earth campaign against Gaza um, and the rhetoric that it's using comparing uh, Hamas to ISIS and, and appealing to the United States to view this as the U.S. war, not just Israel's war, is that the ultimate target of it would be to force the United States or get the United States engaged in an open war against Iran. And what we've seen happen is uh, is what's called the axis of resistance, which involves the Houthis uh, in Yemen, the uh, Islamic resistance in Iraq, uh, Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas. We are now starting to see this network, this coalition, become much more bold and defiant toward Israel and also the United States. But what we're also seeing is increased military activity on the part of the Israelis against uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and also Israeli officials talking openly, saying that they don't necessarily want a wider war uh, against um, Hezbollah and its allies, but that it's certainly on the table. And of course, uh, a couple of weeks ago, or within the last two weeks, we saw the assassination uh, in a suburb of Beirut of Saleh al-Aruri, who was a top Hamas leader and one of the main uh, liaisons between Hamas and Hezbollah, an individual who had also been involved with the negotiations around the exchange of hostages and prisoners between uh, Hamas and uh, and Israel. Now, Israel hasn't taken responsibility officially for that attack, but it's widely believed that Israel conducted that strike in Beirut, very, very significant attack inside of Lebanon because uh, Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, which is a, a very powerful resistance movement with uh, sophisticated military capability, has indicated that uh, Hezbollah is not going to tolerate uh, Israel doing those kinds of strikes. We also this week saw uh, a couple more Israeli drone strikes, uh, including strikes that Israel did, in fact, take responsibility for, one of which killed uh, a fairly senior uh, member of Hezbollah as well. You also have had Hezbollah launching uh, regular missile barrages into uh, northern Israel. And in fact, one of the uh, operations that Hezbollah did, did uh, significant damage in the assessment even of the Israeli government to uh, a key military installation that Israel has um, right near the border with Lebanon. So a lot uh, to, to talk about about all of this. We're going to have two great guests coming up uh, soon on the show, Maz. 
Yeah, the situation is developing day by day. There were reports that Hezbollah had also retaliated by attacking another Israeli military base in retaliation for the assassination of one of their commanders in Lebanon earlier this week. It's clear that every single day the escalation cycle is continuing. And I think it's very clear from the Israeli perspective that they seem to have a window, in their view, to bring the United States in as a belligerent in this conflict. Obviously, the U.S. is trying to pivot away from the region. It's drawn down its forces significantly after two decades of very unhappy wars in the Middle East. Uh, and yet, Israel still has very serious security challenges, has rivalries mostly with this network of Iranian patronized groups in different countries surrounding its borders. And as long as that exists, it's still going to need the U.S. to have a very, very strong military footprint. And if a major war begins now on the back of the conflict in Gaza that expands to Lebanon or Syria or other countries besides, the U.S. still has significant military assets in place, which could very, very likely be drawn into the conflict. And as most people know, it's pretty much blamed this war in Gaza very much so on the U.S., which is providing critical arms and political support to Israel. So from Israel's perspective, this could be a final opportunity to have the U.S. You know, weigh in fighting Hezbollah and Iran directly. Uh, without that support, Israel has very, very unclear chances of emerging decisively victorious in such a conflict. Yeah, and you know, Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, has been in the region again on Tuesday. He was in Israel, and you know, Blinken continues to to put on this kind of propaganda show where the Biden administration talks about, you know, its its serious concern for the fate of the Palestinian people in Gaza, and yet continues to keep this pipeline of weaponry open to Israel. You know, it's really clear, and you could actually read this in the Israeli press um, as well, that if the Biden administration wanted to cut this off and shut it down, it could do it instantly. Um, if, if Biden said the weapons shipments are going to stop, this is over. And it's 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 quite fascinating to watch how U.S. diplomats keep getting played, whether it's Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, or Antony Blinken, who, who's there. You know, the Israelis will say one thing to the Americans and one thing to the American press. Oh, Israel is shifting now into a different phase of this war. They're going to go more into a U.S.-style targeted assassination campaign like was run under Barack Obama when the drone program really got put on steroids and the U.S. started whacking people in these so-called targeted operations. But then to the Israeli domestic public, they're giving a different message, which is that the war against Hamas is continuing, that th this is going to go on for you know quite a long time. And I, I think what was really interesting about Blinken's visit is he arrives in, um, in Tel Aviv and he then is uh, subjected to uh, a lecture, basically, by uh, Israeli officials denouncing South Africa's uh, attempt to bring, or not attempt, but South Africa is bringing um, Israel before the International Court of Justice uh, on genocide charges. And those arguments are going to begin on Thursday uh, of this week. And um, South Africa is going to be presenting a case that basically saying is saying that Israel has prevented, has failed to prevent genocide in Gaza and seeking the court to essentially um, assert its jurisdiction. Now, you know, Israel and the United States both don't care much about international law as it applies to their operations. But this is going to be a quite significant public moment because South Africa is going to make uh, a case that is going to seek to highlight the statements of Israeli officials that are genocidal clearly in nature and the actions of Israel. 
and then Israel is going to uh, present its initial defense. And Israel uh, Israeli officials told Antony Blinken that they're looking forward to presenting their self-defense case at the International Court of Justice. Yeah, it's fascinating the way Benjamin Netanyahu talks to U.S. officials or rebuts their statements and his own public statements is uh, almost comical. He's kind of bullying in some ways U.S. officials. And as much as people talk about, well, Iran has all these proxies in the region which are fighting for it and so forth, Israel sometimes seems to treat the U.S. administrations like its own proxy, especially Netanyahu uh, and the way he sort of intervenes or talks down to U.S. officials when they come to visit him. And I think this uh, court case is something which is very alarming, even though, as you mentioned correctly, uh, Israel and the U.S. tend to ignore as much as possible uh, any dictates of international law and their own operations. From Israel's perspective, it's another step on the path of becoming a pariah or a pariah which is only reliant on one country as its shield, which is the United States, and how long that situation can be maintained as you see this uh, steady accumulation of legal and political precedents which are focused on isolating Israel more and more. Uh, it's very, very unclear, and I think it makes more and more impetus for the Israel to intervene as much as they can in American politics to maintain that defense there. Because without that, it would be standing very, very much alone. And this ICG case is only more symbolism of that. As we now uh, move move toward the program and bring our guests in, it's, it's, it's really vital to remember the horrifying death toll that continues to rise in Gaza. So many children have been killed or maimed. The images that we see are, are just utterly gut-wrenching. You have now almost no functioning medical facilities left in Gaza, the World Health Organization and other groups just saying that the situation is beyond dire. And so many people around the world uh, now calling for a ceasefire. Um, and it should shock everyone's soul that this has gone on now for more than three months and the entire thing is being supported by the most powerful political figure in the world, Joe Biden, the president of the United States. So joining us now are Amal Saad. She is lecturer in politics at Cardiff University, uh, a scholar of Hezbollah and the politics of the resistance axis. Also joining us from Beirut is Kareem Makdisi. He is associate professor of international politics at the American University of Beirut. Amal, Kareem, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for having me. Karim, let's let's begin with you. Um first just in the in the very big picture, talk about now how these events in Gaza, the strikes that Israel has been conducting in Lebanon, um not just in areas that are under the control of Hezbollah, but also the recent strike that took place um in a suburb of Beirut targeting a senior Hamas official. Talk about the latest analysis you can offer on the perspective from Lebanon on Israel's attacks in both Gaza and now increasingly inside of Lebanon. I think the first thing to note is the kind of larger context of Israeli attacks in Lebanon. So even before we think about these last few weeks, I mean, it's important to realize that as far as Lebanon is concerned, uh, the Israelis have been attacking and invading for the better part of four decades or so, uh, including in 1978, in 1982, throughout the 1990s when, when there was an occupation for over 20 years, and then a very big war in 2006. And then there have been incursions since then, attacks, um, you know, violations of the airspace, the maritime space. So there's been a lot of tension over many years um, until Lebanon, you know, first thing was liberated in the year 2000. 
And then, as I said, following the 2006 war, where there's, there's been a kind of a, a balance between Hezbollah and Israelis when it comes to South Lebanon. So with this in mind, I think it's important just to realize again that the idea of the Israelis attacking inside Beirut, for example, most recently, is something that uh, is, is a, is a you know, big escalation in Lebanon. It's something that many people are worried about. It, they're worried about the way in which Hezbollah has responded and might respond, uh, given that they certainly have the arsenal to respond in a, in a, in a, in a quite a, an emphatic fashion if they choose to do so. I think Hezbollah has been very restrained so far. They've kept their attacks on military targets, unlike the Israelis. They've kept their attacks largely on military targets inside, uh, you know, within around eight or so kilometers of Israeli, uh, the, the north of Israel. Uh, I think they, as I said, I think they've been quite restrained. And the worry is that with Israel being uh, on the defensive, I think with Israel being unable to achieve its objectives in Gaza, being unable to eliminate Hamas as they as they kind of declared that they wanted to, to dismantle Hamas, just as they were unable to dismantle Hezbollah in 2006. The track record of the Israelis is that they then tend to escalate. They then tend to kind of push further and further and further in the hope that Hezbollah then responds perhaps to civilian targets or, or responds in a way that they can then use as another justification or excuse to then deepen their response to Lebanon and potentially provoke a war. I think this is the thing most of us here are quite worried about that the Israelis have an incentive at this stage to provoke a regional war, including in Lebanon. Uh, in that sense, Hezbollah is being very, very restrained, but it, that certainly has the capability to respond if it has to. Amal, for our listeners who don't know, can you tell us a bit about the origins of Hezbollah and its relationship with the Israeli state over the past few decades? Karim mentioned that Israel occupied South Lebanon for many, many years, and Hezbollah emerged out of that uh, context, how does Hezbollah view Israel and why would a conflict between Hezbollah and Israel be far, far greater in magnitude and scope than the current war even in Gaza between Hamas and Israel? Okay, so the first part of your question, I mean, Hezbollah owes its existence really to Israel's invasion and occupation of Lebanon in 1982. Uh, it started off as an umbrella group of various resistance factions, which then you know, united and formed the, the Hezbollah organizational nucleus. And it succeeded in expelling Israeli troops from Lebanon unconditionally, actually. It was a unilateral withdrawal in uh, 2000. Now, there remain uh, territories that are occupied by Israel in Lebanon. However, like, this isn't the reason, though, that Hezbollah continues to remain armed and its resistance. It's always been tied, actually. And this has been quite public, in fact. It's been tied to Israel's very existence, as Hezbollah officials put it, its very existence as an aggressive, as they call it, usurping uh, entity. And so they say, so long as Israel exists, this threat will remain to Lebanon. That's a part of it. The other part is that they will always want to support you know, their Palestinian brothers. And so that's another reason why Hezbollah uh, has remained armed since 1982 and has refused any talk of disarmament. I think Hezbollah, and I think, you know, the US and Israel are well aware of its military capabilities and how they've developed since 2006. Now, in 2006, Hezbollah was already what we would call a hybrid uh, military force, meaning it was no longer just a guerrilla group as it had been in the past. It clearly 
emerged as sort of in between a conventional armed force and a guerrilla group. And that's why it was very successful in defeating Israel's objectives in 2006. Now, since then, as we know, Hezbollah has developed its military capabilities, not only in terms of types of weapons, in terms of the size of its forces, you know, which have grown from 5,000 to over 100,000, in terms of rockets from, you know, thousands to over maybe 150,000. So we're talking about, obviously, in terms of size, in terms of sophistication, and so on. But Hezbollah is also has been very battle-hardened because of its intervention in Syria. So all these factors together, I think, uh, make it now a formidable force. And I would say at this point, we could classify Hezbollah more as sort of along the sort of hybrid spectrum as closer to a conventional armed force than a guerrilla force. I would actually call it a resistance army, if you like. So I do think we're talking here about a war if and when it happens, and I do think it's inevitable that this war will happen, what, what, what they're calling the Great War, if you like, is that while Israel could obviously destroy much of Lebanon, no, no one doubts this, and you know kill a very large number of people with its aerial power, what Hezbollah lacks in aerial power, it makes up for with military ability. Uh, in addition to the fact that, as I said, it has you know long, longer-range missiles, you know more sophisticated. Um, weapons that in the past, precision-guided missiles, in fact, they used precision-guided anti-tank-guided missiles, it seems, for the attack on the Meron air intelligence base. Uh, so, so it definitely does have much more formidable weapons, although it would still be, I would call it an asymmetrical war in that, obviously, Israel would be much more militarily powerful. Hezbollah could still inflict massive, massive damage on Israel, and it would be I think we have to look at these things not in absolute terms, but in relative terms. Relative to what Israel's accustomed to, this would be a formidable war because it's unprecedented that any war is taken you know, to Israel proper. All wars that have been fought tend to be fought in other countries or territories that Israel has occupied or invaded. Uh, and while in 2006, Hezbollah did launch cross-border strikes with missiles, I'm talking here about it could strike the heart of Tel Aviv. It could go to, you know, to the utmost limits in terms of the depth of its incursions, the type of damage it could cause in terms of striking all types of civilian infrastructure. And Hezbollah, Nasrallah himself, Hezbollah's leader, has threatened this on multiple occasions. So in terms of quantity, in terms of quality of attacks, we're looking at something Israel has never experienced in its history. And because of that, and because it has so much to lose in a way that, frankly, Lebanon doesn't, because Lebanon has been undergoing a severe economic collapse, doesn't have the sort of infrastructure that you know Israel does, uh, doesn't have the economy that Israel does. So Israel would lose a lot more in economically and in terms of infrastructure than Lebanon would, in fact. Amal, you also have uh, an effort to paint a certain type of picture for your domestic audience. And this is certainly true of the U.S. war in Iraq and Afghanistan, going back to Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera. And the Israeli public is uh, largely being shown an IDF or an Israeli government-endorsed version of events on the ground in Gaza. But if you follow all sides media and all of the images and propaganda being put out, you start to uh, recognize a very different 
reality on the ground. For instance, Hamas's military wing, the the Qassam brigades, they're putting out every day videos showing, and in fact, the the little dancing red triangle has become become a kind of iconic symbol across social media. And for people that aren't following this, as Hamas has been putting out videos, they will often show uh, multi-stage perspectives from attacks that they are conducting on Israeli troop formations, on tanks, um, and they'll put this little red triangle bouncing above it, and then they'll show the actual strike against the tank or the strike against the ground forces. And you know, for people who've been following it closely, it's very clear that the war itself, the military campaign against Hamas, not just talking about the scorched earth bombing of civilians, but the actual military campaign against Hamas in Gaza is not going the way that Israel is portraying it to the Israeli public. And what you and Karim have both indicated is that Hezbollah is a much more advanced and well-armed entity than Hamas. I'm curious about that aspect of it. There's a lot of attention being placed on, you know, Hamas has tunnels, a tunnel infrastructure under Gaza. Well, we know that Hezbollah also has an extensive underground infrastructure, but also um, has a lot more uh, sophisticated weaponry and closer ties to other powerful nation states, namely Iran. Talk about that aspect of this, Amal, and, and why when Nasrallah says an attack against Hezbollah or taking on Hezbollah directly or invading Lebanon directly would, would be a sort of world different from what Israel is attempting to do right now on the ground in Gaza. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very useful point of reference that if we look at Hamas, which doesn't have any anything close to Hezbollah's military capabilities, neither in terms of size, I think estimates say it's between 25,000 and 50,000 fighters maximum. Uh, we know that its weapons are, you know, quite basic weapons. They're not sophisticated. A lot of them are made in Gaza. You know, Hamas manufactures them itself. And, and I don't think that's just tied to the fact that it's not as close to Iran, but I think more, it's just very hard to smuggle weapons into Gaza, clearly. And even so, the Israelis have not been able to achieve a single strategic objective in Gaza in three months. They haven't even been able to take out any senior Hamas, or even, I don't know about mid-ranking, but definitely no senior Hamas commanders or officials. And that's why they, in part, had to resort to the strike, or rather the assassination of Al-Aruri in Lebanon, because they weren't able to take out anyone significant in Gaza. It was to make up for their losses there. So I would say maybe Hamas is where Hezbollah was, uh, militarily speaking, in the early 2000s. It's still in that phase maybe a little more advanced, you know, I'm, I'm not a military expert, but it's definitely far behind Hezbollah. So if, if that's anything to, to go by, what we're looking at here is Hezbollah is the most powerful military non-state actor in maybe in the world, according to many, you know, to many experts, not just in the region. And the very fact that it defeated Israel and by Israel's own, you know, the, the Winograd report, this isn't just sort of you know, Hezbollah propaganda. Israel did issue did issue an invest make an investigation and found that it had failed in its military objectives. So I could imagine that it would fail even more miserably in Lebanon. And if which makes it very difficult to understand how the Israeli government believes, if it, if this is true and they really are heading towards an all-out war with Hezbollah, how they can think that they could sort of escape their domestic problems, especially Netanyahu, by taking on Hezbollah, which is way more challenging. You know, the U.S. defense officials have said this in leaks these past few days. So it's just kind of mind-boggling what they're expecting to get out of this, knowing fully well 
that Hezbollah could actually destroy a lot of Israeli um, military and civilian targets. Kareem, I wanted to ask you briefly as well too, obviously Hezbollah occupies a very unique space in Lebanon's politics in the sense that it's the most powerful armed force and maybe political force in the country, but it is not the government of the country. And in recent speeches, the leader of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, has responded to the current situation in Gaza and has seemed hesitant to actually engage in this war that, as Amal points out, the Israelis seem to want quite extensively at the moment or seem to indicate that uh, they may be interested in having. Can you talk a bit about what Hezbollah's own posture and reaction has been since October 7th and the beginning of the war in Gaza and how they view the possibility of partially embarking on what Amal referred to as the Great War? Yeah, if I can just uh, say one thing that, that just to kind of add to what Amal was saying, I think it's interesting to consider the kind of different speeds upon which, on the one hand, the Israelis in Gaza especially, but also in the West Bank and in Lebanon previously, and potentially coming up in, in potentially in weeks or months, this their ability to inflict you know, massive human suffering on people. And that's, of course, the, the big concern for, for people everywhere. So they are perfectly capable and willing and have a long history of inflicting massive, massive human suffering, including this genocidal war in, in Gaza today. On the other hand, this kind of, as Amal was pointing to, this increasing, increasingly their, both their intelligence and their, their kind of political objectives and their ability to impose outcomes on these wars has diminished greatly over, over, over the past couple of decades. And this was certainly true in 2006 in Lebanon, in the war in Lebanon, where they stated, you know, we're going to destroy Hezbollah, we're going to you know, make sure that they're, they, they're totally disarmed. And of course, none of that happened. And we, of course, know that Hezbollah ended up, uh, as Amal is saying, becoming even more sophisticated, you know, adding a lot more uh, expertise, more weaponry, and have a much stronger military than they did prior to 2006. Same thing's going on in, in Gaza today. So the ability to, to inflict massive humanitarian damage and human suffering is unprecedented as, of course, you guys have been covering, you know, quite, quite well over the, over the past few, past three months. But their inability to impose a political or military kind of solution at the end of the day is something which is quite notable. And I think Nasrallah, Hezbollah in general, and many other people in the region have noted and I think, you know, that's, I think, quite, quite significant. Uh, and, and they also understand that without American support, which is why Nasrallah and others have made a, a, a very strong point at pointing out that this is an American-Israeli, not just Israeli, but it's very consciously an American-Israeli war that's going on in Gaza and potentially in the region. And we see this in Iraq and other places in Yemen. So without this very, very strong American support, military Political, of course, diplomatic at the Security Council and other in other areas where the U.S. is quite isolated from world opinion. That without that American support, the Israelis in of themselves have become much, much weaker. Not so much on inflicting massive human suffering, that is what they're very good at, but at achieving military, diplomatic or political kind of goals on the ground. To get to, to your question on, uh, on you know, Hassan Nasrallah, on Hezbollah in Lebanon, I think it's fair to say there's a kind of schizophrenic situation in Lebanon where, you know, on the one hand, in general, sort of politically, on the one hand, you have half the country that are, you know, big supporters of Hezbollah and of the resistance, and then you have another half which is sort of anti-Hezbollah in its agenda. Not so much questions of resistance, but in its internal kind of politics. 
it's not that this is constrained. There's, there are certain constraints, and Hezbollah and Nasrallah, I think, in particular, are quite sort of attuned to this. They understand that because the economy has, you know, has hit rock bottom here, there's a lot of social problems, a lot of economic problems. There's a lot of reconstruction eventually to come, a lot of development that needs to come. There's no government. There's no, there's no president in Lebanon today. There's a kind of, you know, let's say a political vacuum that's taking place. And, and they're quite sensitive to that. But having said that, that doesn't mean at all that if the decision is to go to war because of an Israeli provocation or because of some kind of strategic uh, uh, imperative that they feel they have, that they won't go to war. In other words, nothing going on domestically in Lebanon will stop, I think, Hezbollah from going to war if they feel that is in their strategic interest or if they feel they're put in a position where they have no choice but to go to this, what Emil is calling this kind of final great war, which most people here think is going to happen. It may not happen today. It may not even happen as part of this particular kind of war. But eventually, unless something dramatic changes, it just doesn't seem possible to have this. It's not sustainable over a longer term to have this, you know, this, this kind of Israeli entity, which continues to want to expand and on the other hand is getting weaker and lashing out even more. And on the other hand, this kind of Hezbollah and other uh, units that are operating inside Lebanon and in the region that are, in a sense, growing in their own stature and their own military might, and that are, uh, as Amal was saying, kind of opposed to the very idea of a an aggressive Israeli state in, in which it tries to impose its military and political agenda throughout the region. That's not going to be acceptable. And so it's not just a question of Iran, but it's a question of many different players within the region that I think this is kind of important to highlight. I fully agree with what Karim is saying about, like, Hezbollah not being deterred by internal considerations like the economy and political divisions within Lebanon. These have never mattered to Hezbollah, to be honest, in the past. And I think the very fact that something that a lot of media commentators and others are missing is that this is the first time that Hezbollah has actually gone on the offense. This is what you know we call offensive defense. It's a for what Iran calls forward, you know, forward defense strategy. For Hezbollah to do that is quite bold and confident, I think, because Israel wasn't attacking Lebanon when this was going on. October 8, Hezbollah opened up a front. And in fact, in previous invasions that Israel you know, has conducted against Gaza you know, from 2008-9 onwards, many were sort of expecting Hezbollah to intervene, and it didn't. And this is the first time in its history it's actually kind of initiated a war with Israel. So I think that in itself is very important to look at in terms of Hezbollah's confidence in its military abilities, because obviously when it did that, it must have expected that Israel could escalate to the point of all-out war. So although Hezbollah now talks about, and, and this is of course true, that on the one hand, you know, it, 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 it opened this front in order to support Hamas and Islamic Jihad and kind of, you know, prevent or rather relieve pressure off Gaza, the other side of this was also in terms of strategy or objectives was to ensure that Israel couldn't launch a preemptive war on Hezbollah, which you know media, Western media had widely reported at the time. So I do think it's important that Hezbollah started this war. It went on the offensive because it expected that Israel would attack it, but also because it's confident of its military capability. And I think it's a huge mistake. I think the most dangerous thing would be for Israel and the US to assume that Hezbollah has an aversion to war and therefore will fear it 
And that's not true because the aversion to war does not necessarily translate into a fear of war or not being ready to, to wage a war. So while I think, yes, obviously it's in Hezbollah's interest for there not to be, you know, to open the Northern Front fully, to move from moderate to high intensity warfare, it is still ready to do so. And I think it believes it would actually succeed in such a war. It does have that confidence. And not only because it has confidence in its own abilities, but the other thing we have to look at is that Hezbollah heads actually what, what is called the Joint Operations Room, which all members of the resistance axis share. So it's not just Hamas and Islamic Jihad fighting on their own. This is now currently now, and this has nothing to do with foreknowledge of the October 7 attack, but currently there's a joint operations room between the various factions across the resistance axis and groups, and Hezbollah is playing the leading role in coordinating these. You know, uh, Hezbollah has always actually kind of militarily been like a model for other uh, groups, you know, ranging from Ansarullah in Yemen to Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Palestine. They've always played that role. They've played a very important role in uh, training these different groups. I also forgot to mention sort of the Islamic resistance in Iraq, the PMU. Hezbollah has played an important role in, you know, fighting alongside these groups, training them. And it's currently coordinating all the different attacks from these different arenas. And so the, the involvement of these other actors is likely to get, you know, it's going to increase if there is a northern front that's opened fully. And this is something Nasrallah has been threatening since like 2017. He said, if Israel wages war on us, it won't just be us who's going to fight Israel. It will be, I recall the speech, he said tens of thousands, and he said, he said even hundreds of thousands of fighters. And these are the same groups. And now we can add more to them in terms of the Ansarullah in Yemen you know, who fought alongside, you know, the, the Syrian regime uh, in Syria. So they are they are going to be the same groups and in fact more of them that will join any future great war. And that's what will make it a great war. It will be a great war because it will be the entire resistance axis. And we're also talking here about Iran, obviously, not just these other groups. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You know, Amal, it's very clear that there are factions within Israel that are very dedicated to drawing the United States into a wider war. Certainly, Iran has been in the crosshairs of both Democratic and Republican administrations. And of course, recently, uh, there was the anniversary of the uh, assassination in Baghdad of Qasem Soleimani, uh, the, the the top Iranian general. And so you you 
certainly have political factions within Israel that want a full-out war with Iran, but involving the United States. And, and you're describing then this emerging axis of resistance that increasingly believes that a great war against Israel is not just likely, but inevitable. And you mentioned the hundreds of thousands of fighters that Nasrallah referenced as potentially deploying to fight this war. What would that look like? You know, I'm, I'm not asking you necessarily to, to like look into a crystal ball, but based on your scholarship and understanding of the history of the region and the players involved, when Nasrallah or others speak of a great war, what, what does that exactly mean? Well, I mean, I think we're already seeing it, to be honest. What we're seeing now is kind of a, I wouldn't say great war, it's a regional, low to moderate intensity war. And it's something quite unprecedented, I think, because it's it's all these sort of, again, non-state or hybrid actors. I mean, obviously, in the case of Ansarullah, they're a de facto state now, so I don't think it's fair to call them a non-state actor. But, so we, you know, we have this coalition, and it's the first of its kind. It's a coalition of resistance forces from Lebanon to Iraq to Yemen and obviously inside Palestine. You know, they, they are mainly non-state actors, and they are fighting to defend another non-state actor or non-state actors. So already this is a regional war. And Although the front between Lebanon and Israel, I would say, is moderate intensity, it's not low intensity because it's not guerrilla warfare and it's not just sort of using primitive weapons like IEDs and so on, which usually characterize low intensity wars. It's moderate intensity. You know, Ansarullah also using missiles, you know, ballistic missiles, that's not really low intensity either, is it? So we're talking about a moderate intensity regional war. So if we imagine it to be a proper high intensity conventional war where these groups totally open their fronts, where Iran also steps in, then we're talking about something much, much more destructive that could encompass not just these different actors, of, you know, across the resistance axis, but even countries that aren't really directly involved. I mean, I don't have much information about this, but like what, what would happen to Jordan, for example? You know, that that's not going to just, and Egypt and all these other neighboring countries. So it would sweep across the entire region and it would affect U.S. forces in the region uh, and U.S. influence in the region, which is already, frankly, like, you know, almost marginal now, I would say. So this is also going to really undermine what's remaining of the U.S.'s power, whether it's hard power or soft power. It's going to completely wipe that out. Can I add to sort of to complement that a little bit? I think one of the big, uh, you know, worries that I have and I think others have is this in the sense of, you know, will, will there be a war? Will there not be a war? The Great War, regional war, however you want to term it. In this immediate moment right now, there's one actor that has a, a, what I think is an interest in expanding the war at the, at this time, which are the Israelis, or at least, a, at least a portion of the Israelis who are these kinds of right wing kind of settler fanatical types that are in, in, in charge of the government today. Uh, and I think their, their incentive is to kind of try to create, try to provoke Hezbollah in this case into this larger and kind of escalation that might then draw the Americans in. And then you, you know, sort of it kicks, it kicks our system. And I think one of the reasons is that they have in, uh, in, in kind of pushing this, this kind of genocidal war in Gaza, there's this other aspect, which I mean, I know we're not talking about this too much now, but the West Bank and the West Bank is really something that they, that these settler types in particular are, you know, are, are looking at you know, and looking that here's an opportunity in order to kind of push Palestinians out of the West Bank and increase their ethnic cleansing campaign toward, towards the West Bank, which has already begun to an extent, but to, to intensify it more, they may need the cover of a big regional war where the U.S. is drawn in in order to also complete that. 
And that touches on what Amman was talking about, the Jordan. I mean, if that happens, then Jordan itself is going to be very quite destabilized uh, as Palestinians would, in that kind of scenario, possibly be pushed into Jordan. And what's interesting about this is that all of this is coming into a phase where one thing that could try to stop all of this, which is a ceasefire in Gaza. And that's something that the entire world has been calling for. It's something that Hassan Nasrallah has called for. It's something Lebanon, the Lebanese government, for what it's worth, has called for. It's what every single country in this region has, has, has called for. Uh, and all of them have said, if there's a ceasefire, you know, we can, we can then, you know, consider it and see what's going on. But Gaza is, is the absolutely most important thing. There's a genocide going on there that needs to stop. And for some reason, the U.S. continues to block any attempts to have a proper ceasefire at the Security Council and in kind of wider diplomatic circles than that in the region. There's something, there's something, at, you know, so significant about this and this so significant about a particular U.S. backing of this genocidal war as though somehow the Israelis are going to achieve something politically or diplomatically, which they are unable to do so. They cannot do so. So this is the, it, within this, you've, this is where the, the kind of a, a concern and a worry about the Israeli incentive to kind of increase this war. And Amal, I want to ask you, building off what Kareem said as well, too, that if you look at the documented evidence of Hezbollah's military capabilities, uh, by some accounts, they have over 150,000 missiles and many long-range missiles which are directed at Israel, which would be deployed in such a conflict. Uh, and likewise, Iran has a network of proxies, which you discussed, throughout the region, which could be activated in the course of a war and could also lead to destabilization in Egypt and Jordan and other countries, which Israel has some sort of tentative peace with in the context of such a conflict. And at the moment, it still seems that Israel is engaging in very extreme brinksmanship that could start a war with Hezbollah and trigger this broader cascade. Uh, today, it's uh, Monday, we saw just this morning, the assassination of another senior Hezbollah commander in Lebanon. I'm curious, you know, why does Israel feel that it might want to see such a war where there could be massive destruction of its own infrastructure, targeting of cities and military assets throughout the country on a scale never seen before. And at a time that the U.S., while still very involved in the region, uh, mainly providing diplomatic cover to Israel, as well as armaments and uh, logistic support to the war in Gaza, why would it want to have a conflict now when the U.S. seems to be trying to pivot away from the region? Is it seem, from Israel's perspective, this is the last chance it may have to draw the U.S. back into a conflict in the Middle East at a time where it's distracted in other conflicts? Is that your assessment? I'm curious what you think. Yeah, yeah that's that's definitely, I think, what's going on is that, and to be fair, like, we still don't know 100% if indeed, you know, even today's, you know, assassination of a senior Radwan force, Hezbollah elite uh, commander, if that was designed to provoke Hezbollah into full all-out war, just like the assassination of the Hamas senior official last week, Al-Aruri, you know, we don't know for sure, but it is increasingly looking like Israel does want to expand this war, does want to move it up a notch. It's, you know, going very fast up the escalation ladder. So it does look like it's kind of counting on the U.S. getting drawn in. Although from everything we've been 
you know, reading so far, the U.S. doesn't seem to want that. It doesn't want to get involved, and it doesn't seem to want Israel to open a front with Lebanon, not out of any kind of, you know, humanitarian concerns, but because it's, you know, it fears that Israel would lose. The real issue here is that Israel does, and, and honestly, the U.S. has kind of given it that hope because, you know, forget like all the, you know, billions of dollars in funding and military aid that it's received during these past three months alone. The fact that it's deployed aircraft carriers and nuclear submarines and I think over 2,000 Marines now, it does look like that this is something Israel could count on. You know, it could potentially count on this. So obviously this is going to present Israel with a golden opportunity to, you know, using the word drag, to drag because it would be against the US as I think a will at this point to get dragged into such a war. Um, when it's already got its hands full with Ukraine, when it's already overstretched everywhere in the region. Obviously, Israel is a settler colony in itself, but like we've got a unique kind of government in Israel today, which is an extremely ideological right-wing government that doesn't even have, doesn't seem to be very rational, and that's what's really concerning, that's motivated a lot by ideology and bloodlust. So when we look at that kind of political context in Israel, and then we look at the U.S., kind of offering the potential of such full-out support, it's very worrying that the U.S. could be turned into a co-belligerent. So I, I do think that is an issue. Can I just also point something out, uh, start up a new kind of discussion here? You use the word proxies, and I, I kind of take issue with that. I don't think that's a very useful term to use about uh, the, you know, the different members of the resistance axis. I don't think Hamas is any more a proxy of Iran's than is Hezbollah or Ansarullah in Yemen. Is, is this something we can discuss? Please, please explain. Uh, of course, go ahead. Hezbollah and all the different different actors in the resistance axis, yes, it's true, they are sort of Iran's junior partners. And it's easy to think that just because they're non-state actors, then that kind of sort of asymmetry in, in, in relations with Iran must make them proxies. But that's not a very accurate uh, description. All of them are autonomous, all of them make their own decisions and act in their own or the way they see their, their interests, at least, or their national interests, in Hezbollah's case, their own self-interest. I don't see a single case of any of these actors acting in a way that goes against their own interests. I mean, that would be proxy-like behavior. If Hezbollah, Ansarullah, Hamas decide, you know, you know re resist Israel, militarily speaking, whether it's offensively or defensively, whichever way it is, they are not acting in Iran's interests. They're acting according to how they see their own interests. So I don't think proxy, the term proxy is very useful here. And I don't think Iran you know, has that kind of relationship that, say, the U.S. does with some of its much more junior partners. It's very different. Uh, they're very organically linked by political ideology, in some cases religious ideology. Uh, they have historical you know, relationships that go back centuries, in fact, uh, in some in other cases, decades. So I don't think this is this is a very useful way of describing the relationship between them. And it's quite dangerous also politically, because if that's how policymakers continue to view Iran and these other groups, then they're going to keep on pressuring Iran to basically compel Hezbollah or Hamas or whomever to change their strategies. And that's not going to happen. That's going to be unsuccessful precisely because they're not proxies. I wanted to ask about the relationship between uh, Hamas and Hezbollah over the past years. Um, of course, the drone strike uh, that happened in, in Beirut and killed a uh, senior Hamas official was a, a very, very significant escalation on um, Israel's part. But I'm curious about the relationship between Hamas and Hezbollah leading up to 
October 7th and how it, it how it evolved over the years. It was certainly impacted by uh, the war in Syria and then other uh, political disagreements. So I think before we look at the relationship with Hamas between Hezbollah and Hamas, we have to look at the relationship between Hezbollah and Palestinian groups in general. So many Hezbollah commanders were in fact members of Fatah back in the 70s, like uh, Ahmad Mughni, Hezbollah's military commander who was assassinated by uh, Israel, also Mustafa Badreddin, who was also assassinated by Israel. They were members of Fatah's elite force 17, for example. There was a relationship between them after Hezbollah was born in 1982. They staged joint operations and Israel withdrew from parts of Lebanon. It withdrew from Beirut in 1985. Uh, and after that, there was a lot more you know, training and joint uh, operations between Fatah and Hezbollah. They also fought on behalf of the Palestinians in the war of the camps in the mid-80s. So the Amal movement, which is also a Shia movement in Lebanon, fought the Palestinians in the mid-80s, and Hezbollah fought alongside the Palestinians. So it was kind of like a civil war as well. So they, they have this history of, you know, relations between them, and they never really cut off ties with Fatah, in fact, over the years. Uh, although they did develop down the line relations with Islamic Jihad, obviously with Hamas, with the PFLP, and so on. So this was all ongoing. Now, in terms of Hamas, I recall in 2002, there was a shipment of arms. It was called the Karin A ship, and Israel intercepted it. And that was sort of armed with, I think, 50 tons, I think, of weapons that were destined for Hamas. And Hezbollah was also involved in this. So that was in 2002, and Hezbollah claimed responsibility for it at the time. Uh, also in Egypt, there was a Hezbollah operative who was responsible for infiltrating weapons into Gaza. His name was Sami Shab. He was arrested by Egypt. Also, Hezbollah came out publicly and, and you know claimed responsibility and said, yes, we were in fact trying um, to support uh, Hamas and preparing for you know what, what was became the 2008-2009 invasion. So there, there is this history. Obviously, also, you've got Hamas officials who, after leaving Qatar and Turkey, like Al-Aruri, who settled in Lebanon, sought sanctuary there. There are several such officials. Also, you've got loads of prisoner exchanges that Hezbollah was involved in, which were coordinated also with Hamas and which helped release many Palestinian prisoners, like the one in 2004, when Hezbollah was able to secure the release of over 400 Palestinian uh, and some Lebanese prisoners. So, you know, there is this precedent of relations. Now, of course, after that, we saw that like in 2009, as early on as then when Hamas bunkers were in the tunnel network, while much, much more primitive, that did have sort of Hezbollah's fingerprints on it. And many argued that Hezbollah commander Ahmad Mughni was sort of the mastermind behind this and that he was responsible for training and helping Hamas construct, construct this tunnel network. So there is that history. They train in Lebanon. We know that much from you know different intelligence reports. There's a you know, history of training, of arming, of coordination. And as I said now, this joint operations room of which Hezbollah is a, is a leading part. Now, in terms of the operation itself, October 7, that doesn't necessarily mean Hezbollah and Iran had full knowledge of this, uh, just because they enjoy this very close relationship. But it does mean that it's very likely they were aware that such a strategy was in place to be executed at some point. Karim, on Monday, the foreign minister of Lebanon, Abdullah Bau Habib, said that Lebanon is ready to implement UN Security Council Resolution 1701. Um, he stated that Hezbollah forces will not deploy south of the Latani River and that the Lebanese army would control all of Lebanon up to the border with Israel 
and that Hezbollah would disarm. And here's the full quote uh, that the minister said. He said that Israel, quote, must fully withdraw from all the Lebanese territories and stop its land, sea, and air violations. Okay, this this kind of stuff happens all the time, this rhetoric and diplomacy. But what's interesting about it and what I wanted to ask you is, is Lebanon's foreign minister or Lebanon's government even able to enforce that type of control over Hezbollah? It's a very interesting kind of dynamic where, of course, on the one hand, down on the ground militarily, no, of course, there's there's absolutely no uh, no no kind of control on what Hezbollah does or doesn't do on the strategic level or on the military level. That, that's for sure. At, at a you know, if you zoom out a little bit, it's an interesting relationship that is one of the reasons why Hezbollah you know ended up becoming more of a political party, joined the Lebanese governments and states, um, and in particular after the 2006 war, where they wanted to ensure that there was this relationship where the state itself, the one thing the state has here, or in principle anyway, is a sense of legitimizing the right of resistance. And so legitimizing Hezbollah as a resistance movement in order to fight uh, with full state backing, whether or not the other political parties like it or not, they always ensured that the government legitimized the right of resistance. And so therefore Hezbollah as the implementer of this resistance. So the army, the resistance and the people sort of all being one unit fighting against in particular Israeli attacks and Israeli violations of Lebanese kind of sovereignty. So they've always wanted to have a government and a state that backs them up and an army that also, you know, works with them as opposed to tries to, uh, to sort of take away from their activities in southern Lebanon. So that's just as a as a kind of important point. So the foreign minister, uh, you know, is not somebody that's that is against Hezbollah. There's somebody. This government. It's a provisional government at this point. It's a provisional government. There's no president uh, today in Lebanon. These things are have been in negotiation for a while. I doubt there will be any government anytime soon until this larger regional issue is is kind of resolved. But in the meantime, uh, the, the kind of the provisional prime minister Najib Mehati and the foreign minister have kind of repeated this notion that the first thing that needs to happen is or has to be a ceasefire in Gaza. Once that's done, and that is a prerequisite, Nasrallah himself has said it. So everybody in Lebanon seems to be on the same page and the same message, which is Gaza first. That has to stop. Once that's resolved, then you have all the kind of political, diplomatic activities that are taking place. We had, you know, Emma Hoxstein who is the American envoy basically dealing with Lebanon and he's quite close to, to Biden. And at the same time, of course, he's an Israeli, he's an Israeli national, but that's a sort of separate point, but he represents Biden in the kind of Lebanon file. And he, uh, he has been coming and going. In fact, he, he was in Israel just a few days ago and did not come to Lebanon uh, because he's been aware that there's no point coming to come to such a conclusion until the Gaza war stops first. The question about 17-1, yes, that's something which is in all the circles, the UN officials and the various European officials that are coming and going. The idea is to say resolution 17-1, UN resolution 17-1, which was what ended the, or created a cessation of hostilities uh, after the 2006 war here in Lebanon. Uh, the idea is to say, well, there's no visible armed activity outside of the Lebanese army and the UN peacekeepers, the UNIFIL, the UN peacekeepers that have been operating in southern Lebanon since 1978. Uh, so, and that's what, that was what the posture was from between 2006 until October 7th, more or less. There was no visible Hezbollah activities 
uh, or you know, sort of you know, in your face presence uh, in southern Lebanon. They had, they, you know, they were always there, of course, but they were not visible. Unifil was never able to verify that you had Hezbollah activities in southern Lebanon, and so the idea that's being hatched is to say, okay. Once we get to resolution, once there's a ceasefire in Gaza, once that, you know, once the diplomatic activity actually starts to work properly, then there'll be this implementation or re-implementation, let's say, of resolution 1701, where Hezbollah potentially might just withdraw its visible, uh, uh, you know, uh, representation in South Lebanon. Of course, it's not going to withdraw everything, but they won't have their guns out. They won't have their towers out, their missiles, et cetera, you know, the kind of more visible stuff. Uh, it's sort of a return to that point, except that in addition to that, the Israelis would have to withdraw from occupied Lebanese lands. So in Israel to this day still occupies Lebanese lands. Uh, there's the, the village of Raja. There's other so-called disputed points along what's called the blue line of separation between, between Israel and Lebanon uh, that the Lebanese government has, you know, since 2006 made a point over and over and over that it absolutely expects to recover that land. So the idea is to say that the Israelis would have to commit to withdrawing totally from all occupied lands, which is what Hezbollah and the Lebanese government have been calling for, and which is also contained within Resolution 1701. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, there has to be a commitment, a, a kind of international guaranteed commitment, again, that Israeli violations, drones, uh, you know, aircraft, uh, uh, ships, everything that kind of violate uh, on a daily basis that have violated for decades. And even after 2006, on a daily basis, they violate Lebanese sovereignty, that that absolutely has to stop. And if that happens, then yes, there would be some kind of, uh, you know, you know, supposedly be an, an agreement where Hezbollah withdraws its visible visibility in terms of its arms, you know, for, for the period. Uh, yeah, I think this is what's being hatched. This is the idea. This is what Hoxstein, as the American envoy, is trying to push for here. I think it's certainly what the Lebanese government would like to do. The Lebanese government would be very happy for uh, things to kind of return to a relative calm. Uh, as I kind of mentioned before, there's a total kind of economic breakdown in Lebanon. There's a social breakdown. Uh, and and it's, it's quite kind of known everywhere here that Lebanon will never be allowed to kind of build up again. It won't be allowed to reconstruct. It won't be allowed to develop. Uh, its banks will not be kind of, you know, reformulated and restructured, the financial situation, the economic situation. None of this will work without the U.S. blessing and without a kind of regional plan in which some of the Gulf states get involved, in which the U.S. doesn't uh, impose more sanctions on Lebanon. Uh, so all of this is kind of tied together, and the Lebanese government would very much like that to happen. Whether that's going to happen anytime soon, I'm not sure, but I pretty sure that nothing will happen until there's a ceasefire in Gaza and uh, the Israelis end up withdrawing from all territories, all occupied territories in South Lebanon. Amal, I want to ask as well, the Israeli defense minister, Yuav Gallant, gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal this week, and he sent what seemed like a very stark threat to the Lebanese people in general. First, he said that regarding Hezbollah, there needs to be the ability for Hezbollah to withdraw from the border such that Israeli civilians who've evacuated the northern part of their country can return back to their homes. There have been several tens of thousands of Israelis who've uh, evacuated from the border near Lebanon in the north. In response to this conflict and the escalation of tensions, he said something very, very chilling, which is that specifically the people of Beirut, that if they see what is happening in Gaza today, 
they should know that the Israeli military can copy and paste that, quote-unquote, to Beirut as well, seeming to imply that the same mass destruction which has taken place in Gaza City at the moment could be visited upon the Lebanese people as well. Amal, can you tell us a bit about Israel's history of this type of military offensive in Lebanon and something specifically that I'm sure you're familiar with that our listeners would like to know about as well too, which is the Dahiya Doctrine and how it's been applied by Israel in Lebanon and other contexts in the past. What's interesting about this is Israel had for years been sort of threatening all its adversaries that it would apply the Dahiya Doctrine, like not just Hezbollah, but also Hamas and Islamic Jihad, and now they have, you know, they're calling it the Gaza Doctrine, and that they'll apply the Gaza Doctrine to Lebanon, which is absurd, because it's the same doctrine of the disproportionate use of force against civilian targets. And when people use terms like indiscriminate shelling of civilian areas, I think this is, this is a, you know, misnomer, because it's actually very discriminate. They deliberately target civilian targets, basically. And, you know, many, I I don't know if you saw the 972 MAG article, this was very eye-opening in terms of how strategically designed this is, that they hit civilian targets with the intention of pressuring these groups, whether they're Hezbollah or Hamas, to kind of, you know, protect their populations by surrendering or submitting, and it never works. So not only is it, in, in the case of you know, Palestinians, it's genocide, basically. In the case of Lebanon, it's war crimes. It's also ineffective. It's proven ineffective. So it's it's quite bizarre that Israel would once again threaten with the same strategy that it relied upon in 2006. And while obviously the casualty toll was much lower than in Lebanon, it was still quite devastating, but nonetheless did not yield any kind of returns for Israel. You know, it couldn't even get Hezbollah to stop its rocket fire, let alone eradicate Hezbollah, which was its initial aim. It wasn't able to change anything on the ground. And it looks like this is going to be the same in Gaza. So threatening with the same strategy that they've employed before, whether we call it the Dahi doctrine or the Gaza doctrine, is just an admission really of Israel's intention to use, in in, in, in the case of Palestine, genocidal warfare, in the case of Lebanon, war crimes, to no avail. So I honestly don't know what the purpose of that is, but it hasn't worked before and it's not going to work now. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I want to get both of you um, uh, uh, to respond to this. Joe Biden has been in political office longer than almost any American politician. Um, He's he's spent the half a century um, in either the U.S. Senate or being vice president or being president. And throughout his political career, which was launched on a national scale in 1973 when he was elected to the Senate, um, he has described himself as a committed Zionist, as Israel's best Catholic friend. We've done many episodes of this uh, program uh, dealing with Biden's defense and promotion of some of Israel's worst crimes over the decades. In fact, he's been one of the premier American officials stepping forward when no one else wanted to get the microphone to defend Israel's conduct. At times, he has um, gone uh, to more extreme positions than even the prime ministers of uh, of Israel. One notorious story uh, from 1982, uh, when the invasion of Lebanon uh, was uh, was underway, and uh, Menachem Begin goes to Washington and. Um, 
upon returning to Israel, tells a story of one young senator who stands up and gives an impassioned defense of killing women and children, um, and that senator was Joe Biden. We've seen Biden's secretary of state pay lip service to the idea that Israel maybe needs to tone down the mass murder of civilians a little bit, and then on the other hand, circumventing basic congressional procedures in the United States to rush through more munitions to Israel as the civilian death toll has just skyrocketed. And of course, every time Blinken goes to the region and goes to Israel, it seems like Israel ratchets up the killing a little bit more every time that guy gets back on the plane to go go back to Washington. But I wanted to get both of you to set Joe Biden in the context of other U.S. administrations on Israel and, and how Biden has approached this particular onslaught against the people of Gaza and increasingly the people of the West Bank and now posturing toward Lebanon. But but set Biden in a historical context compared to other U.S. administrations on these issues. I mean, I grew up in, in Beirut and I remember very well the Israeli invasion of 1982. And I remember for many, many years, you know, for us, Ronald Reagan was this kind of devil <laughs> who had uh, you know, enabled and encouraged and strongly supported you know, Israel's invasion, which resulted in many, many thousands of, of innocent civilians being killed, Lebanese and Palestinian, and a kind of destruction of Lebanon and the siege of Beirut for three months and uh, and, and all sorts of uh, problems and destruction. And this was in the middle of a civil war, as it was, that was to last very, very long time. And in fact, lead to the as Ahmed had said earlier, lead to the creation of Hezbollah itself and the Lebanese resistance. In in retrospect, and and I have gone back and looked at at some of the debates since I, I work quite a bit on on questions of the United Nations and you know looked at at the different debates. When you go back and look at at uh, at what Reagan and his administration administration were saying, Reagan himself once the Israelis kind of pushed through and committed various massacres of of civilians. Reagan was surprisingly in retrospect was surprisingly at least at least outwardly at least officially outwardly saying you know this is this needs to stop that this is unacceptable and it needs to stop and then they put their pressure on the israelis to finally come to a deal with the with the plo uh, and then later with the lebanese government i'm not saying it was a great deal for the palestinians or the lebanese but at least they they ended up putting a lot of pressure on the israelis to stop uh, considering that the israelis wanted to push a lot for, further that they wanted to uh, to, to kind of occupy Lebanon a lot more and do a lot more damage. In retrospect, when you compare Reagan now to, for example, to Joe Biden today, it's it's actually shocking the extent to which Joe Biden has been. It's not about being a Zionist. I mean, I, I don't think uh, I don't think there are too many U.S. presidents that have not been Zionists. The extent to which Biden has gone to support and to encourage a genocidal war in Gaza has been shocking, even to. I would say even to the most strident uh, kind of critic of American foreign policy in the region, I think it's been shocking. And this is even after Trump and after George Bush, after September 11th. I mean, the, the extent to which he has gone to support Israelis in actively in a genocidal war, I think has been shocking. And so I would say he's, in, in that sense, the absolute, has been the absolute worst president in that sense uh, in in this region, in this subregion, anyway. I mean, Iraq is a is a is a different story, but certainly in this subregion. Uh, I, I just also I think it's important to to mention something else. I mean, he he is on record as you just mentioned talking about he's the 
I think you said he was the biggest, uh, you know, uh, Catholic supporter of Zionism or something along these lines. Well, it, uh, I think Biden and many of the evangelical Christians in the United States forget where Christianity comes from, and forget that it's the Palestinians that are Christians, and that you know that Jesus ca came from Palestine and from this region itself, you know. And there's uh, Catholics and Greek Orthodox and Protestants and everyone else that are Christians, Armenians. That are uh, that are suffering under Israeli occupation. That have been suffering even in Gaza. There are churches that have been bombed. Uh, many Christians that have been killed. I mean, I, I hate to talk in this kind of way, but there is this sense of support for an Israel that itself is oppressing and occupying Christians throughout Palestine and Lebanon and other areas like this. Uh, so it's it's extraordinary on many many levels the kind of damage that Joe Biden has had in terms of the image of, of the United States in the region, the, the decline in the U.S. standing in the region, and its ability to be a positive actor on, on almost any level, I think has diminished uh, hugely. Amal, we'll give you uh, the last minute here and the last word. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Karim was saying. Like, apparently Reagan even called it a holocaust. Uh, which the Israelis took offense to um, when they invaded Lebanon in 1982. So that's that's an interesting comparison as well. Obviously, when we look at Trump, for example, we thought that was kind of like the height of U.S.-Israeli ties in terms of the Abraham Accords that Trump pushed through, relo you know, relocating the capital of Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in violation of international law. But somehow, as as Karim said, like Biden has actually you know, gone gone many notches beyond that. And I think this is, yes, partly due to his own ideological convictions, but I think we have to look at something which is very important here, and it's that I think any U.S. president may have taken this, this kind of, I wouldn't say unprecedented, but rather, you know, extreme stand. And that's because Israel, after October 7, I think, it clearly was such a, a spectacular failure for Israel, not just in terms of intelligence, but militarily, is that the U.S. is, I think, very concerned, as are Israel's other allies in Israel itself, that it might not have the sort of longevity in terms of remaining as it is, as a Zionist regime, as a Zionist state, as a military state, that it thought it had. It's no longer invincible. I mean, that illusion was shattered in 2006 anyway. But I think even the very idea of Israel being able to remain you know, in, in the state it currently is, as an ethno-supremacist state, you know, with this sort of military society, very militarized society, and in terms of its military power, it's existential for Israel. And I do think any U.S. president may have gone this far in terms of openly, unashamedly, unabashedly abetting and aiding Israel in its genocidal war. I do think this might not be unique to Biden. Amal Saad, thank you so much for joining us on Intercepted. Thanks for having me. Karim Maktisi, uh, joining us from Beirut, thank you as well. Thanks a lot. That was Amal Saad, lecturer in politics at Cardiff University, and Karim Maktisi, an associate professor of international politics at the American University of Beirut. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is the lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show. Legal Review was performed by David Brelo and Elizabeth Sanchez. This episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. 
If you want to support our work, you can go to theintercept.com slash join. That's theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the size, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating and review wherever you find our podcasts. It helps other listeners to find us as well. If you want to give us additional feedback, you can email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussain. Hussain.